Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Well, hello there. How's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode that's a compilation of all the board games that we've been playing recently. And contributing on this episode are... Matthew Legault of Scorpio Masque, Dyson Dragons, Board on the Air, Board and Game with Andrew Buchholz, The Meeple Dungeon, formerly Metal Meeples and Beer, Friday Night Games, definitely a board game podcast, and Cardboard Conjecture. Remember to check out the show notes for links to all the content of the What You Been Playing Wednesday cast. Have fun exploring all of these great content creators, eh? What's going on? Welcome to What You Played Wednesdays. My name is John. And I'm Matt. What, what? And we are Friday Night Games. Today we're going to talk about 5-Minute Mystery, which is published by Wiggles 3D. And all I can say is fruit salad, yummy, yummy. Yes, it is created by a Canadian. Which is why we like the game. Yes, Connor Reed from, I believe it's from London, Ontario. Dope. At least that's where my game got shipped from, so. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe he's not his own house. Maybe he's not from there. (laughs) Who knows? So Five Minute Mystery is a scenario-based co-op mystery solving game, and the cards range from easy to master. So it's pretty easy. Every, Every scenario card, you're trying to determine the number of suspects for clues to find for uh the amount of time to solve could not be five minutes but most are they range from different scenarios uh you are looking for five hidden symbols and specific picture cards yeah symbols will match a decoder um and if the decoder matches the bottom of the card you get to choose a clue from the clue plot clue from the clue pile English words are hard. (laughs) Uh, Clues will then have a decoder bar that matches the culprit that determines if they have that item or not, which allows you to narrow down suspects based off the clues presented. If you fail, you do not get a clue card. But if you win, you get to look at the clue card and try to decode and narrow down your search from there. The clue card will match the suspect with a little pattern on its bar and that kind of tells you if the suspects have say a fan or glasses and then that lets you look through a pile to narrow down your search you then continue this until you find enough clues to determine the culprit or not within the allotted time frame and if you do it within that time frame you are definitely smarter than we are and if you fail you can go home because you suck Yes, but you're probably still smarter than us, too. <laughs> Let's just be honest here. So what do we like about the game, Matthew? Oh, man. Okay, well, uh, it's made by a Canadian, whoop, whoop. which we uh, said twice already, but uh, that's definitely a bias for a Canadian <laughs> What You Played Wednesday podcast. Yeah. Um, what about you? I mean, it's fast and easy to play. 
Oh, and, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading your note here, and I'm like, I'm not saying that. This is a, this is a family thing, John. It's fast and easy to play. That's all I'm going to say. Um, I do like that uh, the scenarios uh, had different difficulty levels. Um, the harder ones were challenging. You know, there was one um, specifically I really enjoyed playing with, but that was hard was I, as the decoder, I couldn't look at the clue card to find the symbols. And you and your wife, who we were playing with, um, couldn't we couldn't talk to each other, and you had to um, use hand signals in order to tell me which symbols you found. And it was actually kind of funny. Yeah, it was it was really hard. <laughs> uh, the what thi- triangle are you trying to tell me? <laughs> what, what I really liked about it um, was that as a team, you know, once we figured out how the game worked, we all just kind of went to roles. We kind of gravitated towards roles that mm-hmm. we were good at. Um, for instance, you seem to have very good hand dexterity because you used to play guitar, and because of that, you naturally uh went towards the decoder and um my wife naturally liked looking at the animal pictures so much that she (laughs) was the one filtering through the suspects yeah and then uh i think me and you were kind of doing it but i was i was always taking the card and making sure it matched the decoder and then flipping it over and then me and you were both looking for symbols at the same time so as she was as my wife was sorting the suspects john and i were actually uh, focusing on trying to get the as many of these picture cards through as possible within the time frame. Yeah, um, it's really good to work as a team that way, so you can get through the mystery faster. Yeah. So, so what didn't you like about it? Uh, I mean, the clue cards uh, definitely are repetitive. They are pretty much the same picture repeated over and over again. With the uh, the uh, symbols are hidden in different places, but um, it, they it was difficult to solve right away, but. You know, eventually it looks like you can mem- kind of memorize where these things are. There, we did kind of see a pattern on where like some of the symbols were hidden. Um, but I th- believe you said that you that could be remedied by expansions. Yeah, I feel like um, they definitely could. E- they easily can make an expansion for this with more pictures and stuff. And you'd probably never remember yeah. <laughs> where anything is after that. But I will admit that there was enough cards. It feels like I. You know, if I play this within a month, because let's be realistic here, we're not going to play this every day. Right. Um, you probably would forget. Uh, so I already forget <laughs> everything. <laughs> what are we? What, what are, are we talking doing? about? <laughs> oh, we have five minutes to finish this. What? We're probably not going to pass that. But <laughs> um, so for me, I felt that uh, I played it solo, and it didn't play as good solo as it did with three people. Um, I feel like there's a nice point of like three or four people playing the game. I don't know if any more. I think more would just cause too much chaos, so it'd be a lot harder to win. And I feel like less, maybe two people wouldn't be having as much fun. As yeah, so did. three to four is probably that sweet spot. Yeah, that's that's what I believe. Nice. Um, I guess, yeah, okay. Well, that's cool. So what do we play wrong? <laughs> uh, I don't think we actually played this game wrong. Okay. Which is weird. Wow, yeah. That's like the first time we've actually admitted that. Yeah. Maybe second? Maybe. Second time? Uh, but, uh, we, well, we will admit that we couldn't do the hard ones very well. No, we're not going to admit that. <laughs> uh, what, what's cool about the game, like I said, is, uh, you know, not all scenarios are the same. Um, and they give a nice twist to up the difficulty level of the game, each scenario. So, you know, add, adding culprits or taking away culprits and all that good stuff. So, yeah, I would say the way we played wrong is just so we couldn't beat like the master scenarios are really hard. Yeah. And we just probably don't know what we're we don't we don't know enough strategy to we would definitely fail a saw scenario (laughs) (laughs) oh like the movie movie the saw yeah don't put me under stress i can't i can't do it yeah definitely (laughs) not i mean the three of us i mean the three of us would be against each other in in the saw scenario so you know it's kind of (laughs) different 
All right. Well, I am John. And I am Matt. We are Friday Night Games. You can check us out on our podcast that launches every Friday on your favorite streaming platform. Check us out on Instagram at Friday Night Games underscore official, Twitter and Twitch at Friday Night GMS, and on our website, Friday Night Games. Keep your sticks on the ice. Eh? Everybody, it's Rob and Anna Marie, formerly of uh, Metal Meeples and Beer, but we have changed our name to The Meeple Dungeon. Uh, with that name change comes a whole new direction for us and our channel, and Anna Marie is going to be joining me more on a full-time basis for uh, everything in the future, as, as well as uh, a few friends uh, joining in to do uh, more and more things uh, creatively including top 10 lists and uh, our, our reviews and uh, unboxings and things like that. And yeah, we're pretty stoked about the new direction. Uh, but yeah, uh, with that aside, we are going to talk about two games this week uh, for the What You've Been Playing Wednesday's podcast. And that is the first one we're going to talk about is Tidal Blades, uh, Heroes of the Reef Part 1, uh, published by Druid City Games and Skybound Tabletop and designed by Tim and Ben Eisner. This is a 1-4 to four player game and a 5 player game if you have the expansion, which we do. And um, yeah, it's a... Uh, let, let me tell you a little bit about it here. It's, uh, you're playing as different heroes competing to become the newest member of... The defenders of Naviri being judged in performing stunts and challenges in different arenas and stadiums, as well as battling monstrous creatures to gain reputation and ultimately being named one of the newest title blades. Anna-Marie, you haven't said anything yet. Uh, <laughs> let's get you in here. What do you like about this game? Um, well, quite a few things, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite things, first off, was just the artwork and the color on this game. I love it. Yeah. Artwork was the first thing that I saw, when, as soon as I saw the box, I knew I wanted to buy this game. I didn't even know anything about it. Yeah. But yeah, I love the art as well. It was just welcoming. It drew me in. It looks great on the table. Mm-hmm. It's bright. It makes me want to be on vacation somewhere. Totally. You know, so that's nice. Kind of an escape from COVID right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, aside from that, the actual gameplay, mm-hmm. they have a little thing in there called the Shell Shield. And that's part of um, part of your character. So you have to do challenges in this game, and you have to roll dice to complete the challenges. Yeah, I'll just I'll add to that. This this game has a whole array of things going on. There's dice Tons rolling and manipulation. There's worker placement, resource management, tableau building. Uh, there's asymmetrical players. And each one of those players has a player board with four main stats that you're moving up and down as you go. And yeah, go ahead. Take yeah. Some more. Yeah, so with that um, with that shell shield, so when you're uh, rolling dice, um, you have to include what they call a danger die, and this has X's yeah, on it, cool. which yeah. which basically will damage you. You have to give up a die or use this your shell shield. So um, you have these shells that you collect throughout the game, and if you get one of these X's on the danger die, you place to mitigate the the die. You can basically put a shell on your shield. So instead of just being a once-and-done kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The, ne- the nice thing I like about it is that you actually get to use it again. So once you get a certain number of shells on your shield, you can actually use it to manipulate a die face or yeah. refresh some die. So it's not just... Yeah, you're being punished in one, on one side and losing your shells to the shell right. shield. And then 
later on actually being able to use these shells on your shield uh, accumulated there to do other things for you. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. So I really like that. And you had already touched on something um, about this a little bit, but the um, the character boards themselves, mm-hmm. they have these character trait dials because you yep. have four different character traits. Yep. And it's just a neat way of keeping track of your increasing traits as opposed to just having a rectangular board with, mm-hmm. um, you know, as you move them up as you go, which is, there's nothing wrong with it, but just the way that... Yeah, it actually has four, like, individual rondels. I think that's what yes, they're called, rondels. Yeah. yeah. And they, they spin up and down yeah. on the board. Yeah, there's a really great component. And it just made sense with the game how the way nothing is rectangular. It's all fluid. It's yeah. round. Every and it board makes is sense a, with the ocean. Yeah, and, swishy-wishy wave to it. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, I really liked that, um, and I just thought it it also brought more to the game. Um, and then character cards. They had mm-hmm. these character cards. Each character has specific ones to their character. They're super, help, super helpful, and they basically just give you a little bonus based on your character traits. And I found that they added to the story, and mm-hmm. they were just yeah. a great little touch. Yeah, there's it lots of helped. flavor text on, uh, yeah. like... Added into your your individual deck that goes with your uh, the character you're playing, and like she said, it just uh, yeah. There's actually quite a bit of a story going on. It tells you the backstory of the character, what his motivations are, what her motivations are, and so forth. And yeah, there's now five characters. There's four that come with the base box. There's a fifth one that comes with the expansion we haven't played with yet. But so excited to yeah, try that expansion. The character looks super cool. It looks yeah. like a frog person. Really cool. Yeah. The one character I've been playing is. Uh, named Cayman, and he's more of a, an, uh, like a Cayman, like a crocodile-style person. And then there's turtle people in it, and there's kind of elf-style people. It's just really, really cool. I love the theme, love everything about it. We've been having a blast with it. It's quick. and It's very quick. It yeah, really four quick. rounds in each round. The first round, you have two turns each. The second and third round, you have three turns each. And then the fourth round... You have four turns each, and yeah, and then it's done. And it's the there's a whole bunch of end of game scoring and things to go on. There's tableau building, there's set collection, yeah. and there's fighting monsters <laughs> and getting points for that. And there's tons of stuff going on. But really, really great game, um, and we're excited to play with the expansion here uh, this week. But yeah. yeah, no, is there anything else you like to say? No, that that was it. I just really no, liked yeah. it. Fun to play. We're both super Colorful. into this one. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Highly recommend it. Uh, but we're gonna move on. We uh, we we love the Oink games. Um, so much. Everyone fun. out there probably is aware <laughs> of Oink games. They're just tiny little box, but there's a huge game in a little box. But one of our favorite, if not our favorite, is Deep Sea Adventure, uh, which is designed by Jun Sasaki and Goro Sasaki, and it's uh, plays two to six players, believe it or not, in about ten to fifteen minutes. And it's all about diving down out of your submarine in a little. Uh, a uh, little uh, scuba suit, and you're trying to find treasures. And the deeper you go, uh, the riskier it gets. And uh, the more treasure you get, the more oxygen you use, the more difficult it is to get back to the to the, uh, to the submarine. Yeah. At which I it happens to me all the time. I fail and I lose all my treasure. And oh yeah, but it's it's a great game. It's a huge push your luck game, and it, it all depends on what your opponent is doing. So if, that's the thing you have yeah. to be so cognizant of what your opponent is doing because. Because once they it, start collecting too much treasure, the air starts getting you. used, and then if they start heading up, you better start oh, heading up. And that air goes down quickly. Yeah. Awesome <laughs> game. If you guys haven't tried Deep Sea Adventure from Oink Games, go pick it up. You won't be it's disappointed. It's super fun. It's cheap. It's a tiny little game you can keep in your pocket or your purse or whatever. But we are out of time. Uh, again, this has been Rob and Anna Marie from... Uh, 
We are not Metal Meeples and Beer anymore. We are the Meeple Dungeon, and you will see a lot more of us uh, going forward. Uh, see you next week. Cheers. See ya. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dyson Dragons. And you can find us on our YouTube channel at Dyson Dragons, Instagram, Facebook at Dyson Dragons, and uh, Twitter at Dyson Dragon. Yes. So, what have we been playing? Well, we have been playing a game which is Chainsomnia by Japanime Games and designed by Delightworks. You can currently find it on Kickstarter. The campaign is ending soon, so. Listen to us. Maybe you're going to decide to check it out. So tell them more about the game itself, Julie. So it is a cooperative game uh, that is for one to four players. It plays in about 60 minutes. It's intended on the box for ages 14 and above. We've talked about it. I think uh, kids playing alone 12 and above probably works. Uh, and I think if you're playing with them eight and above... Uh, I think the scariest thing here is that, I mean, the, the idea, and I'm, a, I'm digging in a little bit into what you normally talk about, Jay, but the idea here is that uh, these are kids that have been captured uh, by a demon when they fell asleep, and they can't uh, escape until they find a way out, and then they'll wake up. Yes, they're trapped in a nightmare, essentially, in the demon's castle. So the point I was going to make is that could be scary for younger kids. So if you think that that kind of topic will give your kids nightmares and will wake them up then don't play it with them but that being said the game so doesn't present anything scary that even the topic itself should go over fairly well it is quite clearly a game yes now the way the game works is you're going to be exploring the castle you have to reveal all the tiles until you get to the wake up tile and at least one of your party must escape now if you're trying to play with one player or two players, there's some alternate rules because you do have to control multiple characters in those situations. Now, there is a little bit of a wonky rule I don't understand. If you're playing with two players and two of your characters get captured, you lose the game. But if you're playing with four players, it's four characters. But you're both in both games, you're playing with four characters. So that's just a, a little weird. So there's a few little inconsistencies like that, but Overall, it doesn't really detract from the gameplay and the experience. Now, each character has their own asymmetric powers. And as you move through the castle, you're going to be getting items powering up and dealing with some nasty events. Did I miss anything, Julie? I think that's pretty much it. So we're going to get into it. And then probably in the last minute to 30 seconds, I'll talk about the game that I got to play with Friday Night Games, Robotech Reconstruction. We played with the designer, Dr. Wicks, and that's going to be coming out, well, at least for pre-order in June from Japan Anime Games as well. Kind of ironic, working with the same publisher. Um, so it's a fun game. Uh, I would say overarching, um, this, uh, this is not an overly uh, intense game. Uh, it won't get your heart pumping. Uh, sometimes, you know, you find that, uh, you know, their big bad comes out and it gets, you know, the adrenaline pumping. This is definitely not the case with this game. I don't know what you think. I have to agree with you. The, the game never really feels stressful. And I think that's the better way to put it. It's not that it's not challenging because... It's definitely challenging, yeah. Every game that we've played, it's come down to the wire. The first game we lost badly. Our other games, we were literally about one turn away from losing. Now, Julie and I do play a lot of cooperative games, so we didn't find this too difficult. That being said, if you don't play a lot of co-ops, 
maybe this will get your heart pumping and it will be a lot more challenging. I think what was disappointing to us, at least uh, in terms of the gameplay, there were some actions we never bothered to take. We figured our strategy. I think we were maybe just using the strongest characters, at least the easiest to play. So some of the actions like give chains and get chains or giving items just never came up for us. See, the, the, one, the one thing I would say, the, the one thing I would have liked to see in this game, and uh, that's not the way it was designed, but that exit is always the bottom tile, um, which means you just have to, the, the object of the game is to just make sure you get through all of those tiles. I would have liked to see a little bit more randomness in the sense of you don't know where the tile is, which would make you change your strategy a little bit more and add a little bit more, um, ah, I don't know, variety to it. Because in this case, I kind of felt like we were just trying to get through the tiles and it's going to be tight every time. And it's just a question of how, uh, how are the cards going to turn up to see if maybe you'll have that perfect game, right? Well... I disagree with you because I don't think the game could have been designed differently in this case. Just because the way the event deck works is that if you had the, the tile in a random location, well then it's just going to make the game easier. It's not going to make the game any more challenging. It might change up the randomness of your experience, okay, I but you're really doing more fun. Yeah, maybe, but then you're changing the entire game as a goal. You're just throwing the design out and restarting at that point. Okay. <laughs> so, I, I think the game is design exactly the way they wanted it to be. It's yes. not supposed to be complicated. It's supposed to be simple, fun, easy to teach, and perfect for a family game night. I mean, the design company is called Delightworks, and they're trying to have you delight in playing this game. Yeah. So what about that game you played with? So basically, I think it's a great family game. I think it'd be fun for a, fam for a family to play. I don't think this is a games night kind of, uh, as in, uh, if you're with your board game. Yeah, if you're playing with your game group, maybe they'll want to try this once just to uh, check it out. But overall, this is definitely a family-style game. So that's what we recommend it for. We're definitely going to keep this on our collection. It's going to come back out with the family hopefully sooner rather than later. Now, talking a little bit about Robotech Reconstruction. So this is set during the Reconstruction period of the Macross Saga during the Robotech era. So this is after the last attract by the by the Zentradi, this takes place in the far future of 2013. Well, the show's really old, so 2013 was the far future for them at that point in time. And what you're going to be doing is there'll be four different factions that are asymmetric with different victory conditions that are competing uh, to achieve their goals on the board before the other faction does in four turns. Now, what's really interesting about the game is the repeatable actions. I don't have that much more time to talk about it. We're getting to the end of the segment, but essentially there's event cards that, that let you either take an action for yourself or give actions and stuff to other players. And depending on what you do, you can take one repeatable action or unlock your player board. If you help someone else out, which lets you take multiple repeatable actions, especially stronger ones, which is very cool and part of the key aspects to winning the game. So in any case, I'm sure Friday Night Games talked about it. Listen to their section of this podcast or check out their Twitch and see the gameplay. This also should be up on their YouTube. So Julie, take us out of here. So as always, keep playing games. Keep playing games. Hey folks, I'm Ryan of Bridge City Board Gamers. 
and on one-third of the weekly podcast, Cardboard Conjecture, where we offer our opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. We are active on Twitter and Instagram, where you can follow us, at BC Board Gamers. And we've started uploading some videos onto our YouTube channel. Just search up Bridge City Board Gamers. The game that my wife and I have been playing lately is Cloud Age, designed by Alexander Pfister and Arno Steinwinder, published in North America by Capstone Games. The theme of Cloud Age is that there's a secret society referred to as Cloud, and they have set fire to countless oil production sites and burned down large forests to destabilize the world. The resulting environmental catastrophe has disastrous effects on the entire planet, and now years later, you are traveling above the dried-out landscape in your airships, trying to search for a better life. Now, how do you search for a better life? Well, you do this by playing a set number of rounds based on player count, with each round being broken into three phases. Production and planning, movement, and actions. During production and planning, you can convert energy into water and possibly other also points based on how high up on a production track that you've uh, managed to get. You also get to draw cards from your deck, and now these cards are going to have different numbers on them. The lower number that you draw will allow you to draw more project cards or take energy, and the higher number will be your movement points for the next phase. So the next phase is movement, where you can move up to the number of hexes as your card from the production, and with also additional movement possibly from some upgrades and project cards that you have played. Now the key during movement here is that you need to end your movement in a city on the board. While at that city, you can choose to engage in combat with the Cloud Militia, gaining the rewards of the city. Points, water, cards, growth tiles. All you have to do is compare your combat strength to the city. If you're equal to or higher, you win. You gain these combat strength by upgrading your ship and also by playing project cards. So after you've done this movement, will come the action phase. And this is where you're able to play those project cards or build upgrades to your airship. You can also gain resources from the city you're in or be able to play down growth tiles. Now the gaining of resources part here is actually really quite interesting as they are hidden behind cloud-covered sleeves. As the player, you select one of the four main resources, water, metal, um, energy, or project cards, and then you pull the card out of the sleeve to see how many you're gonna get. Now you're always gonna get one, but you could possibly get all, all the way up to three. A little bit of push your luck, and I really like that. And that's what you do during a round. You wash, rinse, and repeat until the, until the end of the game in which you'll tally up all the points you've acquired during the game. Now you can gain points from the cities that you've visited, um, project cards that you've played, um, upgrades you've made to your ship, and then there's all those other in-game points that you can acquire through production or any other cards that you've, uh, instant cards that you've played. Now each game of Cloud Age will play a little bit differently if you choose to play with the campaign story mode. You see, Cloud Age continues this idea that Alexander Pfister likes to do with his games lately, and that is have players play through the story campaign. That usually lasts about seven to eight chapters. Each chapter has points in which the players are going to make some sort of narrative choice, and then the game will evolve in some way by usually adding some tiles to the board, adding some cards to the project deck, or tweaking some of the gameplay rules. The first three chapters of Cloud Age slowly show the players everything the game have of that Cloud Age has to offer, with the remaining four games flushing out the narrative and creating neat options for the players to think about during gameplay. Now there's also a star system to determine how well you've played a current chapter, gaining stars for how many points you've scored. 
um, you, you can usually gain about one to five stars. Let's just say that I have been doing so well, but neither has Jen. We only ever score about one to two stars a game. I guess we just haven't figured out how to play optimally yet, I guess. Now, I'm quite familiar with Alexander Pfister game designs. Mombasa, Maracaibo, Great Western Trail, Expedition to Newdale, just to name a few. Cloud Age seems like the most streamlined design to his name yet. Players are not overwhelmed with options and choices, but rather gameplay has been divided into digestible chunks. Out of his games that have this narrative mode of play, this is the easiest one I would feel that had to get new players to buy into. As the game system is, isn't as complex as some of his other designs. This is great. It's that sweet spot of the midweight euro that I really enjoy. It's almost actually light midweight. This game gets a solid recommendation from me, but just know that you aren't getting into a mid-heavy Alexander Pfister design that you might be accustomed to. And that's what I've been playing this week. I'm Ryan of Cardboard Conjecture Podcast, and you can find our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, actually anywhere that you can find podcasts. Also, be sure to make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter to see what we've been up to lately. Also, check out our recently revitalized YouTube channel, Bridge City Board Gamers. Okay, folks, make sure you keep your stick on the ice. See, I'll hear you. I'll see you for you next week. Hi, everyone. Matthew here from Montreal-based board game publisher Scorpion Masque. When was the last time you played our smash hit Decrypto? Well, if it's been a while, I just want you to know that it plays amazingly well online. Just use your webcam, get other players to download and print up some note sheets, and with only one copy of the game, you're off to the races. Give it a go and see. So do you remember those 3D posters that were all the rage in the 90s? Remember, you'd stand in front of a mess of colors or, or black and white lines and you'd stare at them and mysteriously and magically an image would appear. Dinosaurs or animals or other wondrous sights or that sort of thing. My own experience with this was that I would stand in front of the poster and stare until my eyes watered and nothing would appear. Everyone would smile and gesticulate and laugh in delight and I'd be stuck scratching my head staring at a wall. Well, the game that I've been playing this week has had me staring at a black and white poster, scratching my head and making my eyes water. But this time, I've been smiling, laughing, and even high-fiving. I've been playing Micro Macro Crime City by Johannes Sich, published by Pegasus Spiel Games. Now, this game is a little bit like Where's Waldo, but it's actually more like Where's Waldo, Why Is He Dead, Who Killed Him, and Why Did They Do It?, and also, possibly, why is he naked? I'll explain that last bit in a minute. So, the game is played on a huge board. It's actually a gigantic poster. 43 inches by 29 inches, or 110 centimeters by 75 centimeters. And it's covered in a huge, extremely detailed line drawing of a town full of people, cars, and murder. Yes, this is Crime City, and you can't seem to turn a corner in this place without stumbling upon a grisly scene of death and destruction. And therein lies the game. Micro Macro Crime City is made up of 16 sets of cards that each represent a murder case. So you start by reading the description of the scene of the crime, and the victim, 
on the first card, and then you look at the question written on the top of the second card, and that's where your investigation begins. So, for instance, the person in question might be the victim of a car crash, and the first question might be, where does the victim live? Now, the cool thing about this game is that the image isn't one moment in time. Multiple moments appear on the drawing. So, to continue our example, you could follow the car that you know, starts off crushed up against the lamppost. You can follow it back along the road, identifying its particular markings so you can track it back. And you go all the way back to when it was in the driveway. Oh, and there's the victim getting into the car. So you do this kind of backtracking in pretty much every case, tracing the story back, finding the parties involved, coming across the motive, and unraveling the whole sordid affair. The stories are classic tales of betrayal, crimes of passion, unfortunate accidents, and cold-blooded revenge. And here's the interesting thing in the game. The characters are a mix of real, cartoon-like people and zoomorphic characters. You know, rabbit ears, dog-like faces, that sort of thing. And it's all a little cute. You know, this guy here has a kind of a raccoon look and a big mustache. Oh, and this girl has spiky hair and kind of a punk look. And oh, she's leaking blood all over the sidewalk. Ah, huh, well, uh, huh. Now, this is an element of the game that's really interesting, I find. There's a kind of cognitive dissonance between the cuteness of the characters and the kind of naive, cartoony world they live in and the stark brutality of some of the murders. I mean, it's cute, but be careful if your kids are sensitive to those kinds of things. And remember when I asked about Waldo, and why was he naked? Well, this is a very European game, and let's just say that they don't tend to get as hung up on the human body as much as certain North Americans do. Personally, I had no issue. I just thought it was fun to see these little moments of scandal pop up here and there. But, you know, might not be for all the tastes out there. And the last thing I'll say about this game is that one of its delights is scanning through the picture to try and find your little bearded dude running along with his bag, and you come across a person squashed under a piano, or a pair of legs jutting out from beneath a shrub, or someone flashing a passerby in the park. I mean... <laughs> There seem to be a million stories going on in Crime City, and I can't imagine that they're all tied to just the 16 cases in the box. I haven't finished them all, I've done about half of them. But I'd be surprised if they don't come out with some online content or other exclusive that involve all those little stories that are going on in the background. Now my final question is something that came up in a review of one of our kids' games, Mia London and the Case of the 625 Scoundrels. A great little memory game, by the way, if you're looking for one. Now the reviewer in question enjoyed the game, but claimed that it was more of an activity than a game. I mean, I disagree, as Mia London clearly has win and loss conditions, a set of clear rules, and a, a certain skill requirement to play. And if that doesn't make a game, well, I don't know. Micro Macro Crime City. Is that a game? Is following stories on a map a game? Or is it an activity? Is it important to make a distinction at all? I recently asked that question on Twitter and it generated some really good discussion. And it led me to the conclusion that if we start to limit the things that we call games, then we limit our ability to play. And play liberates so many positive things 
creativity, fun, satisfaction, friendly competition, the more we can transform banal activities into games, the more beautiful our world will be. But as long as those 3D posters aren't there, like those things, those things aren't fun for anyone. Those can, I, we don't, we don't need those. Okay. Those that's, that's just, let's just play some games. Well, thanks for listening. This has been Matthew from Scorpio Masque. Get your hands on a copy of Decrypto, as I mentioned at the top of this segment, and give it a play online. You'll thank me for it later. It'll really bring your group together, or your family, or whoever you play with. And thanks once again to the gang at Cardboard Conjecture, whose name I butchered the past couple of weeks for being such good sports and for having me on. Take care, everyone, and I'll see you next time. Hello, my name is Aaron Milich. And I'm Royce Calverly. And we are definitely a board game podcast. A podcast definitely about board games, except when they're not. And it's Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday to you, Royce. Thanks. So last week on the What You've Been Playing Wednesday podcast, I talked about how I was not cult of the new and how, you know, I was going to talk about an old game and you talked about a really old game to make me look bad. But I figured, forget it. Forget, Forget it. it. Yeah. I'm going to let my cult of the new freak flag fly. <laughs> I'm going to talk about a game that is 2021, dang it. Oh, <laughs> Brand wow, new. really new. <laughs> Holy smokes. What is it? Canvas. Canvas. So this is Canvas by Jeff Chin and Andrew Nerger, uh, Road to Infamy Games. This is, I don't even, it's almost a hard game to describe. It is such a cool experience. You are building a work of art. You are putting uh, transparent cards together. Each transparent card is kind of like a cell in an animation. Uh, If you think of like a cartoon cell, so you're overlapping them to create the whole image. And then you're doing it to score points, to fulfill goals. There's a little bit of a bidding mechanism in there as well. But the art is the thing. And when you end up with these beautiful, completed uh, masterpieces at the end. It's just amazing. Uh, check out our Twitter at board. Definitely. You can see some of the art that, that Grace and I made when we were doing this, uh, especially if you look, uh, she had one that was just fantastic. It was called forbidden curiosity and her final art piece. Basically it was this cat looking out at the moon through an Ivy covered barbed wire fence it was like a commentary on our society and COVID and all this, or maybe not. I don't know, but it just looked <laughs> fantastic. Um, it, there's also a scoring system. Like it's not just about making these beautiful pieces of art. You do have goals to complete in different ways to do the goals. So it actually is a game, right. which I was a little afraid. It was more just a gimmick to make pretty pictures. It's right. not. It's yeah. a good game that ends up making pretty pictures it's a very it it may seem like a fine line but there's a difference between making pretty pictures as part of a game and a game that ends up making pretty pictures and that's what this is it's a game first but the pretty pictures are brilliant and they they really thought of everything with this one because i think you mentioned this this game can actually be hung on the wall yeah as a piece of art (laughs) so the front of the box just has a painting on it and it doesn't have any text or anything and the back of the box has is built in such a way to be hung onto a wall (laughs) yeah it's really cool how can people find this game right now 
Uh, I don't think it's out in stores yet. It has. It was Kickstarter, so the Kickstarters are just being delivered now. Uh, as I said, it's brand new, and it should be in stores soon. And I really recommend highly getting this one. It is a great game. I think it's one I'm definitely going to be uh, getting my hands on if it ever is available in stores. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, the game I've been playing Wednesday and a lot of other days, too, is Patchwork. Uwe Rosenberg, Lookout Games 2014. Going back a little bit. Yeah, yeah not new by any means, yeah. but not ancient either. <laughs> Thanks to Royce, I've learned that it's pretty much impossible to find a miss from Uwe Rosenberg. I love all of his games, especially his polyominoes, and this is his first polyomino as far, as far as we know. Yeah, I believe this was the first one he ever did, for sure. This is one I've been looking at for a long time, but I've been avoiding because it was a two-player game, but tis the season <laughs> for two-player <laughs> games now. So I definitely reached out and grabbed one, and I've been playing. Or two players, la, 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 la. <laughs> he loves to sing. Yeah, so if you like really simple uh, polyomino games, it's basically just building a quilt, collecting buttons, and trying to fill all the spaces uh, on your player board with uh, a really nice quilt. And it's as simple as that. Uh, a lot of fun for two players. Uh, it's got a short playing time, so it's the kind of thing you probably get fit in two or three games in a row, kind of a two out of three situation. Yeah, um, yeah. And as always with Uve's stuff, uh, high quality uh, look, high quality feel, and uh, just a great all-around uh, all two-player game, uh, one that I instantly loved right out of the box. Excellent. Yeah, I like this one a lot as well. It's great. Uh, there's quite a few versions of it now. So if you're interested in an Americana quilt or a European quilt or a holiday quilt, there's all these options. <laughs> I, I wonder, though, if maybe Canvas owes a little bit of a debt to Patchwork. Oh, really? Because uh, Patchwork I, is the first game I can think of that had this sort of mundane theme. Right. So Patchwork is about collecting buttons and making a quilt. Yeah. Woo! Uh, it's not conducting space battles or anything like this. And let's face it, Canvas is about making a painting. It's not right. what you would traditionally consider board game themed. And I wonder if the two are related in a little bit that way. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, and they're both about building art in a way. In a way. In a way. In a yeah. way. Yeah. So that's what we've been playing on Wednesday. If you want to hear more about us, you can reach out to us anytime. Let us know what's going on. Definitely board at gmail.com or at board definitely at Twitter. Or you can find us on our guild at, at Board Game Geek at Definitely Board Game Podcast. You can search for us there. And of course, you can always check out our episodes. Uh, listen to any podcast distributor. You'll find us there. And if you can't find us there for some reason, you can always find us on our website. Just Google uh, definitely board game podcast and you'll find our buzzsprout site there and you can listen to it directly from the website yep and if you think that we're silly and stupid here boy you really should <laughs> listen to our episodes yeah and royce will be singing a lot more there too <laughs> it's the season for two players yeah. la, 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 la. don't do that two they won't players are the best way to play a two-player game merry christmas everybody <laughs> I'm Shay. And I'm David. And we are Bored on the Air, and you're listening to What Have We Been Playing? And what have we been playing? We played 
or I played Lords of Waterdeep. Yeah, I was going to say, I haven't played anything because school, yeah. but yeah. what have you been playing? Tell so me about this game. We are going to be talking about an oldie but a goodie for worker placement games, uh, Lords of Waterdeep. It is what I would consider a traditional worker placement game where one person can go to an action space, you get something, you do something, uh, you have three work, three to five workers during the game, depending on how many people are playing. And more action spaces open up as you build new buildings during the game. Uh, your goal is to complete quests, which uh, gives you victory points. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone has a lord that they're following, which gives you a goal for the game. Because at the end of the game, you flip your lord over, which gives you extra victory points. Uh, reason we brought this out is I just got the new water deeples from... Uh, Broken token, so I no longer have cubes for my workers. They are little, or not workers for your, my resources, basically, and they're yeah. little little shaped meeples. Yeah. Uh, I have blinged this game out pretty much completely now. I have metal coins. I replaced the cardboard gems with plastic gems. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's not much else I could do except for put those stickers on the meeples if I wanted to. Yeah. Which I would do that, but you don't like the stickers. I'm not a huge fan of the stickers on the, the meeples. I don't think they add to them. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you don't care about the theme to begin with, but... Yes. Uh, this game is, as I say, a traditional worker placement game. Uh, it lasts eight rounds. At the end of eight rounds, whoever has the most victory points wins. Uh, the main mechanics in it, or uh, mechanisms, I guess is the proper terminology, is, you know... It really focuses around those quest cards and the intrigue cards. Uh, we played with the expansion Skull, Skulls of Skullport or Scoundrels of Skullport. <laughs> that makes way more sense. <laughs> Something like that. It's an expansion. Uh, it makes it a little bit more fast moving because you can get a better action and then take out the... Uh, but you get a skull and the more skulls that each person has... The more the skull board empties, the more those are worth negative points. Uh, so they can cancel out a lot of points at the end of the game. Uh, the intrigue cards themselves can be very mean. Uh, <laughs> they take a lot of resources from people or... There's not very many nice ones. Yeah. Uh, I don't mind this game. Uh, to the point where I have... Put money into I was gonna it say too. you put enough money into it you must enjoy it at least a bit yeah like it, it's fun i just this last game i i had a hard time with the intrigue cards they were very picking picking on people right yeah and jordan got one where you couldn't actually attack him so in a three-player game it was just me and your mom going back and forth against each other for the most part right yeah that would uh, make it less fun for sure yeah and it, it allowed jordan to really do what he wanted to and collect points and win the game uh, that being said, this one has been around for a long time and is, and is very popular as an introduction work, work replacement game. Yeah. I didn't play it this time, but I have played it before. Yeah. Uh, and I actually did really enjoy it considering I'm not a huge worker placement fan, uh, or at least not like a strict worker placement fan, right? Yeah. The traditional ones are where you sort of shy away from the genre. Yeah. They get a little boring, yeah. a little stuck. Okay. But, uh, I did enjoy this one. Uh, I laughed because I didn't realize that uh, Waterdeep is actually a world in Dungeons & Dragons. So when I played Dungeons & Dragons, they called it Waterdeep. I thought they were making a joke 
about this game. Turns out it's the opposite. Yeah, Lord. Uh, <laughs> so I really nailed that one. Uh, it was very funny when I found that out. Yeah, uh, th- this is a Dungeons and Dragons worker placement game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's set in that world, right? Yep. Uh, I say the only thing I have a problem with is the box because we've decked it out and it won't go sideways. <laughs> it has to lay flat. Yeah, we added the uh, folded space insert. Uh, I forgot to mention we took the little blue skulls out of the expansion and added the Zulkan skulls. Oh, right, yeah. So, yeah, it's on its side it loses everything. Uh, but it's a big box, so it doesn't really need to go on its side. Yeah, it just doesn't fit in alphabetically. Yeah, so that's Lords of Waterdeep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still like it, still in our collection, and we have a very pretty version of it. Yeah, absolutely, and definitely one that I would play again once yeah. we're less busy. Sounds good. Okay, I'm David. And I'm Shay. And you can find us on CFCR every Thursday night at 6 o'clock and all your local podcast sites. Excellent. Have a great night, guys. Hi, this is Andrew Buckles of BoardingGame.com, and I'm here to talk about what I've been playing this week. This week, I'm going to focus on Stellar Horizons, which is a 2020 release designed by Andrew Rader and published by Compass Games. Stellar Horizons is a game about space exploration, missions, and eventually colonization, and it starts in the very near future, with the campaign game offering the possibility of a 2030 start. The campaign game is what I've been playing, and I've been playing it online on Vassal with a group of friends, and the Vassal implementation of this game is really excellent. So in Stellar Horizons, you play as one of a number of nations slash larger amalgamated blocks. So for example, you can play as Europe, or as North America, or as Japan. These playable factions all come with some slightly different abilities, whether that's with if they're focusing on telescopes or robotic explorers or crude exploration vehicles. They also have some differences in the amount of funding they get at the start of each economic phase every 10 years and in what sort of tech points they produce and a few other things. What's nice about these nation bonuses is that they give each faction a bit of a different flair and a bit of a different focus to try and work on, and that's good, especially when you're learning this game and trying to figure out what you're doing. There's a bit of a pathway there for you to explore. But the differences are more slight player powers than full-blown asymmetry, and I think that's a good decision for this game. Stellar Horizons comes with a lot of rules that are hard to get your head around, especially when you're just picking it up, and so it's useful that all the factions operate the same way, go through the same turn structure, and so on. They just have some slight advantages to doing particular things. So what you're actually doing in Stellar Horizons is building different robotic explorers and crude vehicles, launching them into space to either explore different worlds, comets, and asteroids, or later on in the game in particular, to establish bases. 
The exploration is quite cool as each possible explorable location, which is largely planets and moons, but there are also some comets and so on. Each of those locations comes with tech points of one of three varieties, biology, physics, or engineering. And you're, when you do an exploration role, you're going to add up the ability of whatever you're exploring with, and then also the value that is remaining on that world or moon or asteroids card. And you're trying to roll below that number. If you succeed in doing so, then you manage to pull a chit of that variety. And if that chit is a free or higher, usually that causes a depletion. Depletions do some cool things. They give you politics markers you can spend for tech points or for money later. They let you draw world cards to try and improve the production at the location that you're exploring. And they also let you make a search for life, which is another role that can give you some cool benefits and bonuses if you do manage to find life there. Exploration comes at a cost, though, as with robotic explorers, there's a chance of them malfunctioning and thus uh, blowing up and being returned to your card, with you only getting an engineering chit as compensation. Crude vehicles are a little bit better at that in that they don't actually blow up if they fail their role on this particular thing, but they do can get reserved and then they'll have to go back to either Earth or to another base to resupply and return to active status. The other interesting thing with those depletions is that they reduce the value of the world you're exploring. And so eventually over time that world is going to give away all its secrets and you'll have to move on to exploring other things. Something that's cool of Stellar Horizons is, especially in the campaign game, there's a really good arc to this. You start out with not a lot of money and you're not able to do a whole ton, but as the game goes on you get better and better technology, you establish bases on other worlds that produce more resources or more tech points for you, and so as you move along from decade to decade, there's a very good power arc where there's a lot to do. For new players like me in particular, this is useful as by the time you get to the years where you have more to do, you're more familiar with the rules. And while the rules can be a little complicated, they make a good amount of sense once you've been playing for a while. It's also very handy that Compass Games has released these in a PDF version, which enables you to search for whatever you're looking for at the moment. Overall, I think that Stellar Horizons is a great title on exploration and colonization of space, with even some eventual possible combat that comes up in the later years. I think it has a good mixture of realism and accessibility. It's a lot of fun to play, and I highly recommend checking it out for anyone interested in a space exploration and colonization game. I'm Andrew Buckholtz, and you can find me on Twitter at Andrew, B-U-C-H-O-L-T-Z. You can also find my board game writing at boardandgame.com. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is Norm from Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and part of the Bridge City Board Gamers.
here in Saskatoon. And of course, we are going to go to the Bridge City Board Gamers Facebook page and uh, see what the community on this page has been playing. So let's get at it. Lane. Lane is a regular contributor. Lane, ha- uh, let's see. The Dungeon from Adventure Games, Kids vs. Zombies Evolution. Hey, you know what? I ordered that one. It's coming in the mail. Yay. Uh, next up, Jason. Amy and I had a light week, played My City a handful of times, and Mountain Goats. Mountain Goats. I have never heard of that one. My City kind of interest, interests me a lot. Um, uh, um, just because everyone says it's just so smooth. And it plays fast. So, hey, a legacy game that you can knock out without, you know, years going by. I like that. That's a good idea. Ash played uh, Marco Polo. Yeah, I had to do it. Uh, that is such an awesome game. I love that game. It's uh, <laughs> The best part about that game is everything is overpowered, which makes it even. Mike, slacking with only six plays this week. That's not slacking. Finished up the monster book of monster... Uh, expansions for Hogwarts Battle. Yay! I had troubles getting through that sentence. Uh, Cubitos is great. Highly recommended if you like games with dice that make you, <laughs> make you angry about how... Yeah, I'm not even going to finish that sentence because, uh, yes, yeah, uh, dice hate me. That's But you know what? I've heard a lot of people talk good things about Cubitos. And the art looks pretty cool too. Travis, Lords of Waterdeep. Yeah. Uh, and we did... Uh, Two three-player games of Anno 1800 for the first time. That sounds like a heavy game without even researching it. Uh, it's a decent game, but I feel like it has one big flaw, sort of, that I don't like. But he's not hes not sharing it. But he played again, though. Cool. Um, let's see. Uh, favorites going forward. Uh, let's see. Uh, Codenames Duet. Dutch Blitz. <laughs> where I come from and the people I play, Dutch Blitz, Dutch Blitz is a full contact game. So put your mouth guards in. And uh, they played Uno. Uno. Uno? Huh. Sorry. Hands. Once again, right on the top of the list, I'll give you one guess. It's not Earth. It's Terraforming Mars. Uh, Terra Mara, Heleratu, and Praga Kaput Regni. I think we just start, you know, I want, I was going to say, we just start calling it Praga, but you know, it's kind of fun to say the last, you know, two words, because it sounds like a funny swear word. Caput Regni. Um, Eli played Tapestry and Honey Buzz. Never played Honey Buzz. It's kind of interesting. Looks interesting. John played Descent. Yes. Yes. A little bit of uh, dungeon diving. Never hurt anybody. Um... Oats, Theo, Theo Oats. Spirit Island. Yes. Own it, love it. Aeon Zen. Probably one of my favorite deck building games. And Under Falling Skies. We could just subtitle that Space Invaders, the board game with dice. I started playing it. It's awesome. Uh, I have to get into the uh, campaign stuff. So, yeah. Brian played Gloomhaven and Legacy of Dragonholt. Both fantastic titles, both opposite ends of the spectrum. 
Gloomhaven is, I, I like to refer to it as D&D with cards. And Legacy of Dragonhold is D&D Choose Your Own Adventure. So awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, that's the wrap up. So we're going to, we're going to close out the show. We're approaching just a nice hour episode, which we always like to have. And, uh, of course, thank you to all of the contributors. Um, great, great content. And please check out their channels and check out their, their, their own, um, uh, their, their own haven of content. Uh, you, you could spend hours and, uh, and uh, your pocketbook is going to suffer. There's just a, a spoiler warning there. Um, so, yes, we're getting it to summer. We can see it. We can, we can, the new seasonal allergies are coming. So with that being said, um, have a moment when you're in line at the Tim Hortons drive-thru waiting for your double-double. Take care out there. This has been an episode of What You've Been Playing Wednesday, brought to you by the people at Cardboard Conjecture, where it's spring and they're saying, like all Canadians, minus five. Hey, that's t shirt weather.
This episode of What You've Been Playing Wednesday has been brought to you by the people of Cardboard Conjecture, where, you know, a double-double and a chocolate dip, that goes a long, long way.